everybody, my name is Karina Givalkatov, the founder of Mission Magazine, the first fashion philanthropic interactive media platform. The fashion for beauty for good is our DNA. Our podcasts, My Mission Is, are co-hosted with my friend Charlene Spiteri of the band Texas. Our next guest is a mutual friend of both Charlene and mine. So I'm going to apologise ahead for some banter and laughter. But quite frankly, we all need to have our spirits lifted in the current climate. Sean Ellis started off his career assisting acclaimed photographer Nick Knight. Sean then went on to shoot for many publications and campaigns before really focusing on his true passion and calling, that of a film director. If you Google him, you'll see all that he's achieved so far, and a sentence describes him as an Oscar and BAFTA nominated director. Sean Ellis started taking pictures when he was 11. He is still charming and still as sarcastic as ever, I hope this podcast puts a smile on your face as it did ours. Take good care, keep strong and keep going everybody. Hello love. Hello, you redecorating? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in my old bedroom in London. That I started to redecorate in January last year because I ah. rebuilt and off, had an office built. Oh, you're doing well. She's all over it, Sean. Well, this was last year. And then work got mental, COVID hit, and I just thought, I don't care, quite frankly. <laughs> Whereas everybody else in the country literally went, I've got nothing else to do, so I'll, I'll finish decorating the thing that I started. But she just went, no, I'm not going to do anything. I like peeling off a little bit of paper when I'm stressed. It's brilliant. I'll peel little bits off and go around with a scalpel. So it's kind of my, my little dungeon. But... I'm, feeling a, I'm feeling a film coming on, Sean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, feeling, I'm feeling a movie here. I can't repulsion. Asylum. It's a bit repulsion, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. Totally brilliant. I'm literally seeing the script being written as we talk. Right. Well, talking of which. Where are you, Sean? Are you in London? I'm in London, babe. Nice. London town. How's the, uh, is the album all finished? Album's all done. Everything is ready to go. We've had one single out. Um, it's that radio at the moment. Even in France. Very good. Great. Um, yeah, well, they it's good. Love you. I mean, literally, well, the, the French are literally like, everybody's going, well, how can we get you to France? And they're like, you can't get in. No one's allowed in. I'm like, where are you? Are you in France? Yeah, and cognac. I thought so. I was a bit like, because I was a bit like, why are you not in one of the big fancy production rooms rather than the laundry room? Yeah. No, I edited the film in my laundry room. It's so glamorous. <laughs> did you really? No, you never. Yeah. He yeah, did, I did not do it in his laundry I room. I did. I did. Did you? My, yeah, my, uh, my editor was stuck in New York, and so we did it remotely. He was editing in New York, and I was just on Skype with him. We did four months over the summer and uh, like last summer, and then we just we just uh, premiered the film at Sundance, and we're re-editing again. So we're that's amazing. That. I've been a, done another three weeks with him, but yeah, I do it all here remotely. Amazing, amazing! Congratulations, Sean. It's amazing. Thank you. Can we just say that our friend? I mean, even though that you're obviously a guest on 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 mission here on our podcast, but I mean, literally, you get awards coming out your ears and nominations coming out your ears. Like, everything you've done is, like, 
I mean, I always say whenever I introduce Sean to, to any of, of my friends, I say, Sean Ellis, Oscar nominee. <laughs> <laughs> it just sounds so good. Oscar nominee. You're the, you're the only, yeah, you are my friend that is an Oscar nominee. I was actually, when I was doing research, I went through that as well. Um, hang on, before you speak, Sean, I want to add to what she's just said. Um, because um, tw 2008, Sundance Film Festival, you launched The Broken then. You had three awards at the British Independent Films in 2013 for Metro Manila. Best Director, Best Achievement in Production, Best British Independent Film. And you're on, mate. And you're still going. You're still going. It's, it's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, all the biffers you've got. Everything that's mad. I literally was like, oh my God, he's literally everything that he does. I mean, because even when before you were doing films, Sean, I mean, he's also got a Brit. I'm a musician and I don't even have a Brit yet. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't I don't have I don't have a Brit award, like physically the award. I think I I won one, but I, to the award? And the band got it. The band kept it. Did they? Did they never give you one yourself? No, they didn't. <laughs> no. I remember that was a funny night. We, we, we were together that night. Do you remember, Shaw? Oh, my God. We were together that night. That was us, you, me, all the band, Method Man. That was, that was the Method Man. Oh, my God. That was a crazy night, I remember. I think uh, we were a wee bit drunk that night. Well, I was. For anyone that's listening to this, can you just explain um, like what the what it was? Like who were you with the band? And it was the Brit Awards. And I think it was ninety. I want to say ninety six or seven. No, uh, it's ninety eight. Ninety seven. Ninety eight. Ninety seven or ninety eight. I think it's ninety eight. Basically, a very long, 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 long time ago, um, and well, obviously, Shah was there because it was the Brit Awards. Were, were you there? Um, because you had we were up for an award. I was performing. You were performing. I was up for an award, but we were. That was the night I performed a Method Man from the Wu Tang Clan. That's so we right. Did, we did the, that. Was the version of "Say What You Want" that did come out that week? Yeah. And actually, there's a there's a there's a connection here because I photographed the single cover for you for that. Absolutely, you did do, which is in every porn shop in Soho. <laughs> <laughs> which Sean, which Sean told me. Yeah, I walked past a pawn shop in Soho, and there was a picture of Charlene inside, up on the wall. And I was like, I, I was calling her, saying, "There's a photograph of you in this pawn shop." And I think it was like one of those, you know. She was like, "Oh, you know, my dreams are fulfilled." <laughs> I've always wanted to be on the wall of a pawn shop. <laughs> I tell you what. I know why that ended up in the, the I know why that ended up in the porn shop because it, it's taken me years to figure it out. So Sean, when Sean Sean did loads of Texas sleeves and everything, um, and Sean taught me this trick that when you're having your photograph taken, that you put your tongue in the roof of your mouth, so you literally go, and it, like your mouth just opens a little bit and it relaxes your whole face and it just like thins down your jawline and your neck and everything. So of course, I took on Sean's advice and did this. That only ever the photographs that Sean has ever taken of me are the ones that end up. Even I remember seeing a thing in GQ, and I was like, "That's my mouth." They used the mouth, and I'm like, "That's my mouth." That's the Sean Ellis mouth. That is literally <laughs> like, and it's just, it is just. I don't know what it is, but there must be something quite obviously that people think I want to put something in it. 
probably a fist, but <laughs> so yes. Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! Okay, so you have a Brit as well. He's got everything. This rat. Yeah. So so yeah, Brit awards. I, and I'm just going to say, I'm curious. I'm never going to jump around in this conversation. Um, your um, eight for silver. How hard was that to do during COVID? I mean, had you already done everything, and it was just the production side of things last year? Oh yeah, we we'd wrap before. Um... We wrapped before COVID went down, uh, you know, before it stopped all production. And so we were just editing through that period, um, you know, and uh, in actual fact, it didn't, it didn't really, I didn't really notice much, to be honest with you, because I think that's when you realise your, your lockdown life is exactly the same as your normal life. Yeah. Yes. I was like, wow, I second that. everybody's freaking out. I'm like, this is, I mean, at least the world knows what it's like to be a struggling film director now. Waiting at home, <laughs> waiting for the phone to ring, trying to write something, failing, <laughs> you know, consuming large amounts of alcohol. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> I think that's what everybody says. They're like, oh, it must be really hard. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, I mean the thing is, yeah, that's... That's what we do, isn't it? I mean, we we sit at home and we we have to work on. I mean, I mean, I, I guess same for you, Shah. I mean, it's the days are, are are long gone. The days that you you would go and actually work in a studio and songwrite per se. I mean, it's it's all prepped prehand, which means you have to work at home. So you're a, you're one of these creatives that work at home, which is pretty much what the whole world's been doing for the last you know year. Um, so yeah, I mean that's that's when you realise that your normal life is the same. Yeah, people are literally going like, oh, well, how do you do this? And I do it must be really hard. And you're like, no, that is what we do. This is how we work. You know, I think people don't know to the extent that we all use computers. You know, for you and magazines, uh, Karina and Sean with film is like the amount that we can do on these little machines because yeah, we have plugins and we have this that the next thing and we have programs that allow us to do the jobs that we do but you know it's when people say now oh you know when when I first started out you could only make a record in a studio like you could only make a film in a studio you know like as far as like going in and editing it and everything but now it's like you know we'd use tape we use these giant machines that cost thousands and thousands of pounds to make a record now is relatively cheap. You know, you can make a, a record for not a lot of money now. And and has that changed the film industry? Um, yes and no. I mean, the thing is, Stanley Kubrick said the cheapest thing about filmmaking is one one person at a typewriter, and it, that's that's where it all starts. You know, it's like a, a little bit like for you, it's like you writing a song actually is not expensive uh if um in in that sense and then obviously technology has made things easier but ultimately the difference between filmmaking and 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 music is that uh filmmaking is i don't know, I, I, I hate to say art form I, I say discipline where you need an enormous amount of people to help you do it um and that doesn't get any cheaper. Whereas I think technology in the studios uh, has made, thing, made things easier and made things cheaper. Filmmaking per se has not got uh, any cheaper. 
uh, it's still expensive to make a film. Um, if you've got, if you've got, normally you've probably got forty to forty people on set, you know, and they're all doing their specialized bit, whether it's costumes, makeup, hair. I mean, if you just even start looking at the lunches for forty people, the difference obviously is that the avenues for releasing films is become small. Um, whereas music now, you know, it's all about being live gigs, that performance. They, you have that outlet. Film, film, film doesn't have that outlet. It's cinema. And at the moment, cinema seems to have been dying a slow death um, and needs to be reborn in some other uh, form. Of, uh, you know, it needs to be reinvented. Um, you know, obviously Netflix and places like that have, have really hammered um, the industry and the way that the industry was set up. Um, uh, there is no live performance for films. <laughs> it's it's cinema. That's the live performance. So, um, how how does it survive this kind of uh, this technology, which obviously uh, killed the music industry as we know it, and it, the music industry had to re be reborn. Absolutely. So it's an interesting time for film right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, the question is, is because you know, so many people are talking about the, the, in the sense that with so many releases going straight to streaming, um, with you know, movies that you know over the pandemic, um, that so many um, studios and people have chose to stream their movies straight, go straight to you know, pay per view. And there was a conversation I was listening to something on the radio the other night that they were talking about. Um, you know, maybe the pay-per-view is the way to go because people have got massive screens in their houses now and they're, you know, the quality of what they're seeing and everything. I was just thinking, you know, not it'd be old-fashioned, but it, it's it's still, you know, I was just thinking, surely, like, I would have loved to, over a pandemic, like, okay, we can't go and sit in a movie theatre, but my God, if you could do those big, giant open screenings, you know, like, almost like a drive-in, I would, like, I'd happily go to drive-in. It's such a you know, such a such an event and something to do. And it's like, you just think, of, well, where is cinema going to go? Because going to see something, you know, actually physically getting up, especially, you know, in those cold winter nights where you go out to a movie or whatever and it's it's it gets dark and you get your popcorn, you sit down, you watch the trailers, you think, oh, I'm going to go and see that in a few weeks, whatever. And just that moment of when you come out and the conversation... It's not like you just go and put the kettle on, you know, in your house. It's, it's an like, experience, isn't it? The experience of going to the cinema is just so important. Exactly, yeah. 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 I, I want to actually mention, you talk about the budgets and costs and everything. And, and I was reading up on um, your work and your method. You were saying about you build a 360 set. How vitally important do you think that is to include in, in your films? Because surely that's going to be an added cost, as opposed to having a green screen on, with some productions. Well, yeah. I mean, my producer says that I ask for the world and normally settle with what I get. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's you hope that you you're in those situations. We were lucky with Anthropoid because we did have a we did have a, a 360 set, which really you know creates a bubble for the actors to work in and give you something that. I mean, your job is to make their job as easy as easy as as possible to sort of be be able to give uh you back the reality of what it is you want so you know that could be costume it could be 
uh, the set, it could be whatever, but you're, you're giving them as much to react to and to give you back, they'll give it back to you in, in, in truth. Um, but yeah, those things do help, but financially it's not always possible. You know, sometimes you just can't build a set and you have to do it against green and, and, and that whatever it is gets dropped in later. Do you, does that come in the early state? I'm so curious how you plan for that, because I guess to build a set that adds in timeline before you can start filming. So are those all decisions that are made way beforehand, because we have the budget in place way beforehand? I mean, just if, we, if, I, if I talk about Anthropoid for a second, I know, I know our, we had, I think we had, um, I think we had 13 weeks of prep. And I know that the, the church started building on day one of that prep. So it was 13 weeks it took to build that church and, and at the cost of a million euros. Wow. Wow. So, yeah. And we shot in there for, I think, seven days. And then literally by the weekend, it was knocked down. And the following week, they were building sets for Underworld 4 or whatever. Have you always seen yourself being in, going into the film? industry like when you obviously we all know you started in fashion photography but has that always been your like your early early passions like okay I'm going to do this and I really want to my dream is to go into film uh it was it was always yeah my passion as a youngster was films and movies and I used to you know every week I used to go to the magazine shop and buy you know Star Lord or uh and 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 Fangoria because you know it had all the sort of new horror movies that were coming out um yeah so i was definitely into movies and i would watch movies i would watch probably one or two movies a day from the video store and i would like critique them and i would give them little scores like i'd have a little book of like uh you know reviews i'd done on movies that i enjoyed and i used to give them scores for like poster and you know effects and I used to write these little reviews. So, yeah, I mean, I was very much into that. But then at the same time, I was sort of, I was into photography as well. And photography was something that you could do without a crew and without, you could do it on your own with just you and a camera. So I think uh, at a certain point, my, my, my photography kind of got to a point where I was able to cross over into filmmaking. It's like you've almost done it the other way around. Um, in a sense, but I guess having the knowledge of knowing cameras has greatly benefited you now that you're doing cine- cinematography. Do you feel like you've got a bit of an advantage in that sense that you know about cameras and loading them and, and the angles? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, <clears throat> you know, uh, film films are visual storytelling. So, um, I mean, there are directors that come from, uh, the written word or, or they come from, uh, you know, their background is acting and they, and that they come, they come at a story slightly differently. Um, and, and maybe they rely on the visuals to be done by their cinematographer, um, who will interpret the, the script for them. Um, but I guess my approach to it, having that sort of photographic knowledge is that, um, I understand how to communicate visually by using a camera. I, I understand the difference between uh, isolating your character in in a, a very shallow depth of field, whereas, or as opposed to the effect it has if I had a, a very wide scene and I wanted everything in focus. Um, <clears throat> so I can I sort of understand how to 
achieve the uh, the image in my mind. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. Because I think visually, I think visually, for me, it's like I, I tell a story and I go, what would be that if I was the most powerful way I could tell that? And I, and I think about it emotionally and then I think about it visually and I think I have an image in my mind. Um, some people are able to draw that image. Um, I was always shit at drawing. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> again, probably why I got into <laughs> photography because I could actually c- create I could create what was in my mind quite accurately by using a camera. So um, I was just it took a it took a long time to actually how to how to get it to look what was in my mind but have it you know have a photographic representation of that and that was you know that's where your craft comes in that's how you learn how to light something to give mood you know because that sort of stuff is in your mind oh I, I want it sort of moody and sort of side lit and and I want it to be you know I want it to have this kind of background and and I want this kind of movement so you know, you have to understand how those things work. So, yeah, I guess that's just um, photographically learning your craft. Sean, do you hear um, sound um, instantly, like when you're creating a script and when you're um, when you're writing a story and creating the story? Do you hear, you know, what kind of music instantly to that, or do you wait till everything's down and then? Because yeah, I know that you you know, you're very hands-on and your music and everything that, 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 that goes into the movies. Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's sure, it's really interesting, but it's, for me, um, it's also one of the reasons why I got into filmmaking is because my photographs didn't have a sound. And filmmaking is, is you know, sound in filmmaking, whether it's music or sound design, is actually probably 70% of what you see. Um, and it's super interesting because it's subliminal. It's something that taps <clears throat> into the viewer and gives them um, a sort of subconscious feeling of the story. So it's incredibly important sound. And I guess I, I, try, to, I try to leave that to the end I've put temp track music on films before, and it's called the temp track curse. You find the perfect (laughs) piece of temp track and you go, this is fantastic. It works amazingly, right? This is exactly the feeling and emotion that I want. And then you go to U2 and say, can we have this piece of music? (laughs) They go, yeah, it's a million and a half. And you go, oh, we we don't have the money. So then you go, Okay, so then you're talking to this composer about, I want it to sound like you too, or whatever the track is. Um, and it becomes this, like, it doesn't matter what the composer does. Um, they're chasing this temp track, and it's never going to be the temp track. And so you always sort of feel disappointed. So right. after, after I did that once, I basically didn't put any temp track music on my films. I don't put temp track music on them. I, I, I edit them completely silent without any music. Wow. Music has the power to um, put, a, put a protection over the edit, uh, and it can hide a bad edit. Uh, it can join the cuts, if you know what okay. I mean. Or from, when you go from one angle to another and it doesn't work, you sometimes see it. Uh, but if you put music over the top, you can't see the edit. And so it's very dangerous to cut your film with music. You have to look at it completely without its makeup on 
and you have to understand that the film is going to work without any music because you know when you put music on it, it's only going to get better. It's going to make it better, yeah. It's going to make it better. So it has to, in its rawest form, it has to work um, without any music. Um, and then and then that's when you go to work with your composer and you work with them uh, to find the sound of the film. What is it? And it normally comes back to, if you work with a really good composer, they'll, they'll break the film down into uh, emotional parts, like what is, the, what is the story about and what does the story uh, tell the audience at that point? Do we confirm that feeling emotionally, musically, or do we go against it and bring another feeling that, you know, a feeling of dread into this moment, that if this gets lost, if this moment gets lost then all is lost. Do we do that musically? So you start, you start to almost rewrite some of your story emotionally wow. with the music. And that, for me, is a fascinating process. Like, for example, for your last film, the one that's just come out, Eight for Silver, how long did that... What, I'm so curious to understand the writing process because it's, it's got to be so different to... There's got to be a, a style that you have to apply. Um, like I, I was reading the thing you said before, effects, woody, rain. So do you have to, like, when you get to a final script, is it quite short form that you're writing? And how many stages does that go through from initial idea? I mean, you, are you just in that room on your typewriter, like Stanley said, <laughs> constantly? I'm so curious with the writing process. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I can't remember who said it, but... Um there was a writer that was asked about do they write when they get inspired or do they write on a schedule? And he said, no, I, I write when I get inspired. I just get inspired at eight o'clock every morning <laughs> or something like that. <laughs> and I think that's, I took that, I took that and I, that, that becomes my mantra in, in a sense. It's um, you have to write every day for me, for me, it's, um, you know, it's getting the kids off to school and then it's like coffee and then I'll be in my, I'll be in my room and I, I work literally from 10 till 12. I, it's two hours. There's no computer. There's no, uh, there's no internet. There's no phone. It's just a typewriter and I write for two hours. And generally after, uh, for two hours, I write two pages. Generally, I write two pages and, and I do it seven days a week. And so basically at the end of the week, I have 14 pages and your average script is about hundred pages. So you're looking at about three months to write a draft. And I can't, I, I can't even write after lunch. I mean, you get these writers that write all day. <laughs> Forget it. I can't, I mean, nah. I literally that, that, that two hour, that's that two hour sweet spot for me. And, and that might include even, uh, you know, a lot of it is, a, is, you know, just keep writing till you, you get to the end and then, and then, even then it's like, okay, that, those two hours will include rereading and rewriting and rereading and rewriting stuff and rejigging stuff. But yeah, I mean, it's after, the afternoon. I can't, I can't write. And, and also it's weird because I, I, because I write on a typewriter, it makes my brain work in a slightly different way uh, because um, you can't like with a computer, because you've got that lovely magic uh, delete button you you type you just type something and you 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 look at it on screen and you go no that's not right and you delete uh, you go back you delete delete and you rewrite something and you go yeah that sounds better and then you carry on whereas with with a typewriter because 
you know, you, <laughs> I don't want to fuck about with Tipex, basically. Um, <laughs> you really, you really see, you see and visualize the sentence first. And you go in your mind, you're, you're constantly thinking that that's the sentence. And then you, then you commit to it. And I think that's a really interesting thing, committing to something. We're sort of, you know, nobody commits to anything these days, you know, because there's so much choice and there's so much, it's so easy to change your mind. And it's like, oh, okay, it's just, you know, it just feels like for me, it's the process of just committing to something and doing it. And that is the big thing. It's the doing. It's, it's two hours of doing as opposed to, oh, you know, I'll do it tomorrow. Do you write down a sentence on a piece of paper and then type it? I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I'm one of these guys. So I just, I, I'm constantly, like, for instance, I'll rewrite a sentence like that because I know, I know that these two are the same, but they're said slightly differently. And I just want to remember how many, how many different ways I've said something. Um, but you're forming basically the best way to say it. I'm very tactile in, 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 in um, like, I, I like pens and stationery. I like to see the stuff. You know, I, I'm, computers are a necessary evil. Um, yeah, I need my setup before I go. You know what I mean? You have, you have your way of doing it. You have your pens, your paper, the nice paper that you like. Exactly. I have, I have a rule that I have to be given a notebook with every album like I have to get a notebook given to me by someone else it's like I don't know it's like my my luck I don't know what it is but that's the way I, I have to have a new notebook my pens and that's it and also I think it's really important when you know for young writers to know wait wait T no tell me that because that's really interesting so you this this notebook let me just go to the notebook is it the same do you have a notebook that you go to it's like this is i i want this make of notebook or is it a different notebook every time it's a different notebook every time um and that kind of with that notebook being different and with the paper being different and with the fact that it was given to me by somebody else so people give me notebooks all the time and I just feel like a big pile of them and then the first thing I do is turn on his side and I write down pages Texas number whatever number the album is so then on a shelf I have all the Texas albums like all the writing and then within those books because when you're talking about the typewriter and the computer I mean, I've never written on a computer and I agree with you when it's so easy to remove something that you've written and not, you know, it, that you're kind of, you know, I think sometimes you, you need to see really, really clearly if you've written something wrong and, and not delete it, but even just put a line through it and then move on to the next line because Sometimes what happens is suddenly the line still doesn't sit right because everything's a rhythm. A movie is a rhythm. I mean, I always think that if you watch a great movie, the rhythm that the, the, the movie has is so important because it, it joins with your heartbeat. Suddenly you, you can feel the breath in it and the air and you feel those moments where you're getting you know, with this tension or something and suddenly your breath gets shorter and then the moment where it all opens up and you're like, thank God. And and for me, that that's what makes a great movie. And I think really important in the writing is that, is that you see sometimes 
something that you've written that maybe didn't work at that moment in time and then went back about it. So it's really interesting that you say that you really study the line and you really think hard about it rather than banging it down on a computer, erasing it, then rewriting it. It's like, you know, yeah, very weird. Yeah, for sure. I have to say, I'm like sure. I think Sean was going to say about your notebook. I've had the same one for the last 17 years from the same place that I buy in bulk. Oh, really? I'm so anal about it. And I actually gave last year to someone in my office in New York. I gave her one of these because she was short. And I went, write it down. Here you go. And then I ran out in New York. And when she came in the following week, I said, can I have it back? Because I need to have the same one. And I said, I can't get it yet because I'm not going to be in the UK. I'm so particular about it. Yeah, I mean, I think as well, I would I would write a very different song on lined paper to what I would write on blank paper. Do you know what I mean? Sometimes I even write on squared paper. Does the size of the notebook uh, have any uh, Yeah, I don't like you? big. It's got to be, it's always got to be, you know, like A3. Have you, have you got into Midori? I, I wonder if you've got any Midori notebooks. I don't even know what that is. The Japanese, they're called Midori. Okay, well, I'm going to send, I know what I'm going to get you for your birthday. Oh, my God. Is that that really, really thin, thin, beautiful paper? Um, no. no, Midori. <laughs> I, want, I want a Midori notebook. They do every type of paper that you want. Crisscross paper, lined paper, double lined, uh, watercolour paper, whatever. And it goes, in a little, it goes in a little notebook that you fold and it looks a little bit like the Indiana Jones kind of diary. Oh, wow. It's kind of cool. I'm going to get you one of those. You'll like that. Have you been to that shop? Have you been to that shop in Tokyo? That literally, I don't know. It's like nine floors of stationery. Oh wow! No, sounds amazing. Have you been to that place? Oh my god! I've spent I spent a whole day in that place because it's really weird that we're all being so anal about stationery. It's literally stationery is like at the moment. So I've got all Sean's questions and bits and pieces on squared paper because that is me because. It's a series. <laughs> it's me being serious. So I think if I write it really neatly on squared paper, whereas if I was just like doing something, if I was writing something with Sean right now, I would write it on blank paper. Do you know? Do you know what I mean? Because it'd be more free flowing. No, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. No, I get that. I totally get that because I often uh, legal pads. Legal pads are quite interesting as well. You know, yellow legal pads. Yeah. I always feel that I need to write really neatly on them. Yeah, but if you need to spit an idea out, for me, legal pads are the best way of doing it. Like, you know, just jot down on a legal pad and keep going, keep going, keep going. And it, I don't know, there's something about the yellowness of it and uh, it feels like a, a note to yourself. It's a bit like a post-it. Actually, you know, it's a funny story about Stanley Kubrick and post-its is that when post-its first came out, uh, he got his assistant to get in touch with Post-It and ask whether they could produce them in different colours and sizes because they would be really helpful for him. And they were like, no, Post-It notes are only in yellow. Oh, my God. But, I mean, talk about being ahead of his time. So Stanley Kubrick basically changed... Post-It notes, yeah. Just look at that. Yeah, exactly. That's what he wanted. He wanted Post-It notes in different colours. And he was told, no, we only do them in yellow. I think Stanley Kubrick's estate should be taking a percentage of post-it notes. Stanley Kubrick's estate needs to get in there. <laughs> well, you know, Stanley was very much into his uh, stationery as well. Really? 
Oh, he was. He, he's he, a massive yeah. inspiration to you. We know he's, he's your man. Yeah, he definitely is. Um, you know, I think um, if there was ever anyone I sort of look up to as far as how how he operated and what he did and what he produced, yeah, I mean, it doesn't. He's a hero in that sense. It's, it, there's no there's no better person to go to and being inspired by. Is there anyone else that you aspire to? Like, I know he's obviously the main one, but is there anyone else that you, you work that you admire? Oh, I, listen, I mean, anybody that makes a movie, I admire. <laughs> it's so difficult. It's so difficult to do. I mean, even even to make a bad movie is is so difficult. Um, making a good movie is just almost impossible. It's like... Um, and that's, I guess that's why great directors, you look at the work of great directors, I mean, all right, they have, they have more hits than misses, but there's still misses in there sometimes. And it, it's, it might not be right now or it just might not be right full stop, but it's, there's no sort of secret to making a great movie. It, like there's no secret to a great song. It's like you do it, it's, it happens, it, 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 it lives, it is a thing. Some people, it talks to some people or it doesn't talk to some people. There's no, you know, I often hear this thing in my industry is like, who's going to see that film though? And you go, well, how the hell do I know? What have I got, a crystal ball? Exactly. It's like, who's going to buy that album? It's like, well, how the hell do I know? <laughs> exactly. If everybody, if we knew that answer, if we knew that answer, then there would be a lot people making a lot more money. And that that's the thing is there's certain people within the industries, within the creative industries, you know, a lot of like legal people that have come in and everything, and, and you know, um, analyst people have come in and they've tried to break it down. And it's like this is a it's a because it's a rhythm, because it's a feeling, because you know the public don't know what they want ahead of time. They just like when it comes, they go, oh, we love that because it kind of slots into their life. It slots into their feeling. It slots into, you know, their being. And that's when you get a hit, a hit movie, a hit, it's like a hit record, you know, a magazine that people love, a photograph that people love to look at, a painting that everybody wants to own. You know, it's, it's about that moment that's something that slots into people's lives and they can see something of themselves in it. They tell their story within the story. And and that's like really, you know, I, I, I think the analyzing stuff is, I, I don't know why they think it's going to work. I don't know why they think that that you're going to know the answers to that. Because do you know, do you, Sean, do you have like, I know there, there'll be certain things that you do, like you write for two hours, you start at this time, you get the kids off to school and everything. But I, I bet you don't really question how you do it. You just do it. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I question whether I can do it. We all do. <laughs> I constantly like, yeah, yeah I, that's a big thing for me. Like, shit. I mean, and, and I, I, I sometimes have to stop myself, like, uh, especially if I'm on set, because um, there's a, there's, the buck really stops with you. You're, you're the general um, of this small army, and uh, you cannot doubt yourself. You can ask, you can say, is that any good? And people, you know, the people around you can sort of give you an opinion and you can sort of, you know, uh, assess it. But, um, you know, I think ultimately if, if I've actually really thought about the pressures on me at that point wh about whether I could, whether I'm, whether I'm doing a good job or, or whether um, the financial pressures on me as well, you know, because obviously there's a lot of money involved when, uh, and they're all looking at me to sort of uh, 
you know, spend it in a way that is for them, uh, they get to see what they want to see. Uh, if I actually really thought about that, it, I, it would, it would strangle me creatively. So you can't, that you really have to be able to block that out. I guess, I, I guess, you know, and again, you know, even on the other side, there's the sort of critique side. I mean, I mean, shall I be interested to know how you deal with this? Cause obviously anybody that makes anything, there's going to be people that talk about it um, or not talk about it. <laughs> so tell me, how do you, how, what's your, what's your, what's your sort of, how do you deal with critiques? I don't pay any attention to the good or bad. It's funny, you you know, and we all know that, that the bad stuff, you know, nobody ever tells you about the really good stuff, but eventually, you know, something like your family will tell you the good stuff. But someone always wants to tell you, oh, I saw that review or oh, I saw that such and such. They weren't very nice about you. And, and you just, so you can't, I, I just kind of think you just got to do what you do. And, and you, you know, we know in our hearts at the end of the day, if we've been lazy on something or if we've, you know, or if we're like, yeah, this is the dog's bollocks. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, you've just got to be sure to yourself in, in, in that sense of like, well, you know, no review is going to change what I did. And that was what I wanted to do. And that, that was the way we made it. And, and we're happy with that. And it's funny as well, because you look at historically with movies, Sean, I mean, Coppola is like the probably like the, the most common one that the general public would know of, you know, when he did the apocalypse now and heart of darkness and everything and all, you know, like all that, that whole thing of like, I mean, what was it when the apocalypse now come up? They literally, and, and I think one of the godfathers or something get absolutely slated. And and now they're like, you know, everybody's like they're the greatest movies that were ever made, and da, 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 da. and so many like great directors um, went through the exact same thing, and musicians. And suddenly, at the end of the day, you know, the critiques are out there to do a job, but the general public will always decide um, if you can, you know, if you. It, the difficulty is getting it out there and getting the general public to hear it or see it. Um, and that's always the challenge. The challenge is, is that if you're not getting the great critique is like, well, how do I sell it into this and how do I get it out there? And that's the difficulty with people critiquing you. Um, but, you know, people could have the best reviews on the planet, but as soon as it, it's out there, the public are kind of like, I ain't feeling this. You know, there's just something not, there's something not true about this. There's, it feels a bit fake and it feels, you know, no matter what someone said about it. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think, you, I guess there's certain things in there. If you see something that you know is a bit true, if somebody said, oh, that was lazy writing, or that was this, it was that, sometimes you know yourself and you're a bit like, I need to get my shit together. I would pay no attention to them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean... Can I ask you a question, please, going back to your film? Uh, um, I'm, at what point when... Um, like, now you've wrapped up Eight for Silver, have you already got your next idea? And at what point do you start cultivating your next idea? Like, is it in the middle of when you're f filming, you're like, oh, I've got, oh, I've got a little nugget of what I want to develop next? 
Yeah, I, I learned quite early on um, to apply the rule of Tom, Dick, and Harry to uh, what I do. And uh, during during the the Second World War, the the uh, the prisoners the, the the prisoners that were in these German prisoner war camps, it was their it was their um, duty to try and escape. And instead of just digging one tunnel, they would dig three tunnels. Because if one got discovered, they would move their resources into another tunnel. But they were constantly digging sort of two, three, three tunnels at a time to see if they could escape. And they used to call the tunnels Tom, Dick, and Harry. So I have projects called Tom, Dick, and Harry, which I'm constantly working on because with film industry, you never know when one is going to actually just either get discovered and shut down or one's going to actually get to the start line. It's a, it's a miracle that actually any of them get to a start line, to be honest with you. So I do tend to work on three projects at a time. That's amazing. Um, in order to, you know, hopefully find one of them will get to the start line at some point. Wow. That's amazing. That's very clever, actually, not putting your eggs in one basket. I love that now I'm like Tom, Dick and Harry. I'm like, that is just like a really cool thing. You'll have you'll have a notebook. I like that. Three notebooks, one called Tom, Dick and Harry. I'm loving that. I'm actually going, I like that. I've, uh, yeah, I've got two scripts ready to go. No way. Wow. Yeah, I've got two. I've got two. One, one we're out to cast at the moment. Uh, the other one we're out to financiers. Um, we're doing it the opposite way, getting financed before we get cast. And, um, uh, and I mean, as, and the other thing is, you know, obviously because I've just had the film out in Sundance, what tends to happen is that you get, your name goes back on people's lists again. Um, so you start to receive scripts from other people, which is always nice. I don't discount making someone else's script. Um, if it comes, you know, if, it, if someone says, "Hey, this is an idea we've got, and this is the script, and we're ready to go," you go, "Oh, well, I've got a, I've got a spot, and I could fit that in." Um, so yeah, so uh, there's constantly you're constantly trying to keep things uh, moving forward. So hopefully that you are in the chair more often than not. Is that strategy wise with the film that's just come out? Obviously, there's media attention. You know, you, you, you're. Um, in everybody's thoughts and minds, you know, the name, John Ellis, is that why you have scripts ready to go so that then you can, then you're on that momentum um, that you can present, you know, go after financing in the cast? Yeah, it really helps. I mean, people go, we love that. What is it you want to do next? And you go, this. <laughs> okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you've got to get them while you can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember finishing my first film and then having nothing. And they were like, what do you want to do next? And I was literally like, you know, it was a conversation stopper. You go, I don't know. So I started to really think, take some time to actually work on some projects um, and then keep working on those projects while one is actually, you know, being shepherded to the finishing line so that when people are talking to you about what's next, because that's, Sure, you must know when you do interviews for records, that's one of the, it's the question that they all ask. They, there's two questions. They open the interview with, where did you get the inspiration for the record? And the second one is what, the last question is always, what's next? What's next, yeah. As if they're not happy, as if they're not happy with what you do. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you're like, can we just concentrate on this for one minute? Yeah. <laughs> Sean, see, you know how, like you said, that you watched, like, as when you were growing up, you would watch, you know, like, 
two movies a day sometimes. Do you still do you still like watch a lot of movies? Yeah, I watch a movie every day. Yeah, I, I mean, I love you know how much I love movies anyway. What would be what would be like your like comfort movie? What would be your ultimate like? You're thinking right? I, I'm not feeling fantastic today. I'm just wanting to like settle down, just be in my own little world. What would be the your go to movie? Like you would just go right big mug of tea. Settle down. Well, <laughs> there's there's probably a number of them because there's a number of movies that I just revisit every year, uh, and it's it's what I call palate refreshers. I just look at them and they refresh my palate. It's like that bit of ginger in between, you know, having two bits of sushi, you have a little bit of ginger, and it these these refresh my palate. I, and and I guess they would be a kind of Every year, I'll, I will definitely revisit a David Lean film, just because from the from the from the scope and from the from the epicness of what he does. Totally, you know, I love a David Lean movie. There will be a Ryan's Daughter or a, a Lawrence of Arabia in there every year, just to watch. There'll be something. There'll be something by Michael Mann. There'll be Heat or something like that. I'll love. I, I'll, I'll always watch Heat once once a year. I haven't um, seen that in ages. I'm going to watch that. Yeah, I love that film. I just, you know, I I like I like to revisit Alien once a year. Also, Blade Runner, I probably watch once a year. Um, I think they're probably the two films from Ridley that I I definitely you know watch every year. Just 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 from from a complete spectacle point of view and and from visionary point of view, just because you go wow, look at the date of those films and they're still <laughs> they still pack a punch. I know. Amazing. When you're watching those movies, do you sit and are you? Can you? Because you're so engrossed in your film career now, can you look at them as a story, or do you just start thinking, "I like the lighting on that. That's a good idea." And how do they do that? And is that three sixty set? Do you start picking them apart a little bit? Um, well, I mean, listen, Shah Sha started her career as a hairdresser, so and she said she can never walk down the street without looking at someone's hair, going, "What the fuck are you doing with that?" <laughs> and so you know. <laughs> I'm terrible. I'm the same. I'm the same with films. It's like I look at it and I go, nah, mate, that didn't work. Uh, no, no, no. Or yes, I see where you're going with that. And exactly. you, because you have such an inside knowledge, you don't, you never watch, very rarely watch a film as, as an audience member. Um, I mean, you do as an audience member, but you have such an inside knowledge of how they're made and how they're constructed and how they're put together. You you can see the choices that have been made or where they didn't have enough budget for that or where they didn't know what to actually write in that scene or <laughs> or you go, you know, so you're you you you're you're learning, you're watching and learning based on the knowledge that you you have as a filmmaker. Uh, but sometimes, you know, occasionally there's times that the the director has managed to hide the filmmaking process and you go, ah, oh, that's really good. You know, because obviously as a filmmaker, you're, you see the filmmaking process the same as a hairdresser sees how that hair was cut, you know, or how a musician sees how that, you know, how that track was structured. You know, that's the way you have that insight and that knowledge. But when it's done, when you see somebody do it really well and you go, ah, oh, okay. That's that took me for a second, and I didn't really know where that was going. And I, I, the payoff was great, and so you go, okay, that worked. That really worked for me. So interesting. Yeah, 
it's it's hell it's hell with my wife because I just sit there and I kind of I critique films while I'm watching and I sort of say you know and she goes oh don't 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 you know oh, don't don't and, and you know I'll always tell her the ending sort of <gasps> or if I see it early on I always like okay so are you like that with kids movies with your children no but I got to say some of the best writing is in the kids kids films period hell yeah have you seen Crudes 2? No. Yeah, I saw it, yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's so, I mean, from the soundtrack to the writing, it's so good. It's really good. It's really good. The story is fantastic. I mean, the, the thing is as well, it always amazes me in kids' movies as well, is actually how brutal they are. I remember the first time I watched Finding Nemo and I was literally like, what? Jesus Christ. You know, it was like my heart was literally like, you know, that father, he was like this single father bringing up this child and he's, you know, like molly coddled him for, you know, most of his life. And this child was looking for this freedom and saying, I can do this, and, you know, because he had this small flipper. All that kind of thing. And the story with the crudes in the first one and now the second one, where the story's gone in it, I just always think, Jesus, the... I don't know why, but you don't expect a child's movie and script to be so bold and brutal. I'm always like, wow, when I see them, whenever I watch them. You know, go back to Bambi even. The first, the first, the opening of Bambi, his mother's killed in like within a minute of the movie. It's like, Christ. Yeah. I remember as a kid watching Watership Down and, oh, and yes. was was crying so hard yes. that yeah. my mum had to slap me because I couldn't, <laughs> I, I was, I couldn't breathe. My mum my, my was like slapping me. <laughs> she was like, breathe, breathe, breathe. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, they, they are traumatic and uh, they are, but I mean, they're I really guess, I guess films, yeah, but they're, they're, they're all about emotion, aren't they? That's, that's what I like about them in, in that sense. I mean, there's nothing, they're very powerful. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I love kids movies. They're great. Great. But no, I don't ruin the ends for the kids. You spoke about um, telly and you're given like your critique on everything. You know, you guys work together as well. How does she keep, keep you <laughs> in life? <laughs> um, I think she has that theory of kind of pretending. She sort of gives me that enough rope to sort of hang myself with. Right. Okay. She gives me the illusion that I'm in control. And normally I come back and I go, I go, oh, I've, that's, that didn't work. And she was like, she's got that face where she's like, I didn't want to say, but you had to find out, right? And um, so she's very good. I think she's very good at just letting me make uh, mistakes and learning from them um, and sort of seeing how I learn from them, um, especially when we work together. I mean, there's been, you know, for, for somebody that hadn't produced before she had a very um uh a very insightful uh approach that was you know made me think that she was probably born to do that but yeah it was very um i mean we made better manila, manila together it was just the two of us when we went out to the philippines and made that film so it was literally we we landed in the philippines with i think forty thousand that i got from a loan and we were like trying to figure out how to make a film for 40,000, you know, and it was like, we were meeting these people literally in back alleys 
And it was like, do you know anybody who could line produce this film? <laughs> and yeah, yeah, my cousin, my cousin could do it. We're getting, you know, so, um, I love, I love the stories of that movie. Yeah, we slowly crewed up with a with a group of people and 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 sort of met a a, a like minded group of filmmakers, and we just, yeah, we just went on that journey and made that film. It was a beautiful experience, and. Um, yeah, I'd love to be able to do that again in some respect, but, you know, our lives have become sort of fuller and more complicated. But um, I often dream about sort of just upping and going somewhere and setting up a movie that, like the way we did Metro Manila. I just want to also say, Charlene's question was, how does she keep you in line? You're in the laundry room. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So she's put me in the laundry room. And I have instructions that if the dryer is to stop, I have this, I have to push this button because she's like, well, you're here, aren't you? I Fair mean, enough. yeah, exactly. Multitask for God's sake. Multitask. Yes. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in the laundry room. That's, she knows where to keep me. Yes. Well, listen, we're going to say thank you because we've gone. I think this possibly is the longest one we've done. And I know that we could just keep talking. because oh, I could have gone on well. all afternoon. I know, oh, I know. Really? No. We haven't even talked about Karina's move back and forth from New York to London and the bedroom and look at the state of it. Look at, I mean, how is she living, that girl? Christ almighty. Hello, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that last podcast with Sean Ellis. My name is Karina Givardsov, the founder of Mission Magazine, the first fashion philanthropic interactive media platform, with our tagline for fashion for beauty for good. My missionist podcasts are normally hosted, as you probably know, by myself and my dear friend Charlene Spiteri, the singer-songwriter of the band Texas. Unfortunately, Charlene is unable to make this one due to other work commitments she already had on the new Texas album that she's doing. So hopefully she'll be back with us soon. Our next guest gives you a little bit of a sneak peek into our next issue that we're going to launch in a couple of weeks. It's the human issue. This person is someone I think has such an important voice for us to learn from and be guided by. I will be talking to Coco of Talk to Coco, who is a staunch advocate for mental health issues and the LGBTQIA communities. I will be asking her a whole manner of things. But something I'm very interested in is how to stay mentally strong whilst we have gone through quite a few lockdowns is high on my list. Please do tune in, keep well and stay safe. All the best.